Hello, world. You're listening to the Kitchener-Waterloo-Linux User Group audio podcast. KWLUG discusses topics related to free and open-source software of all kinds. We meet on the first non-holiday Monday of each month in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike license, so you can give it to others, remix it, or even sell it, provided you abide by the terms of the license and share alike the works that you remix and redistribute. For more information about KWLUG, visit kwlug.org. For more information about this podcast, visit kwlug.org slash podcasts. In this month's meeting, Jason Paul gives us a tour of his home lab setup full of enterprise servers, and Mikolai Baruku discusses privacy safe. All right, great. All right, so thanks, everyone. Um, yep, so I, as, as Andrew said, I've, I've kind of talked about my home lab a little bit, and uh, it's a little more um, extensive, I guess, than some people have heard, so I will give you a bit of a show and tell on that. Um, so just a quick thing on me. Um, I've been using Linux since 2001. I've been living in the region since 2004. Um, I write a lot of articles on my blog at linuxtech.ca. Um, so some of the stuff I'm talking about here, I've actually already made articles about. Um, so t- check it out and, um, you know, connect with me on LinkedIn if you want. I'm pretty active on there. Um, so this is the current state of the home lab. Um, it's a 16U rack. Uh, I've got four servers. Uh, three of those are compute units, and then one is mostly storage. And uh, I've got a pretty hefty UPS and a battery extension on there. Uh, and then some um, 10, 10 gigabit networking and uh, a 48 port switch. Um, so I'm going to go through a quick, some quick details on it. I'm not going to spend too much time. Um, but uh, so like the, the latest one I just picked up was a, a Dell PowerEdge R640. Um, the CPU is a bit weak on this one. It's an eight core, 16 thread. There's two of them, but uh, they're only 2.1 gigahertz. Um, so it's fine for some workloads, but um, if um, it might be something I, I upgrade the CPUs later on. Um, all the servers have 256 gigs of DDR4 memory at various speeds, mostly 2400 megahertz. Um, they have uh, SFP plus uh, network cards uh, at 10 gigabit, and then they've got a couple one gigabit uh, RJ45. So this one has that mixed on a, an integrated card that goes right into the motherboard. Um, most of the other ones I've added on a uh, SFP PCI Express card. Um, and then I've got a bunch of storage that I'll, t- I'll talk about a little bit more. Um, the other two servers are the older generation, the Dell PowerEdge R630, which are solid servers. I think they're from around 2016. Um, these are, uh, the processors are older Xeons, but there's more cores, uh, more threads. They run at a higher clock speed. Um, and then again, I'll talk about storage a bit. Um, so this one, these two are pretty much identical. Um, this one has a bit of a high, a, a newer um, processor version, the E5 version four versus the version three. That came into a, it was, it was important because I was using VMware uh, ESX and they actually depreciated support for the V3s. So the V4 was, was nice, but I've, I've completely moved away from uh, ESX. Um, they're the largest servers, this PowerEdge are R730XD. Um, it's got two 10 core processors. Um, it's got 256 gigs RAM and it's got a bunch of extra storage in three and a half inch drives and a couple two and a half inch drives for the OS. Um, so this is what the inside of the R630s look for, looks like. I've had to do a bit of CPU surgery a couple of times. I was troubleshooting some memory issues when I first got them. Um, so I had to swap the CPUs around just for testing. Um, 
So that's what it looks like inside. Um, I managed to get it all sorted out, thankfully. Um, and this is the network cards that I'm using. Um, they're either a QLogic um, Broadcom adapter or a Dell Broadcom adapter. Um, so uh, the fanless one is, uh, I think I've got that in my workstation right now. All the other servers mostly have the, the fan one, um, just in a, in a PCI riser. Um, most of these are connected with 10 gigabit uh, direct attached copper. Um, this has a nice advantage over fiber because it's quite a bit cheaper. Um, with most SFP connections, you need uh, an adapter and those can be pretty pricey. But with with DAC cables, you get um, the, the, in, the interface on both sides, um, but it's attached to the to the line. So you're 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 you have to you can buy them in various uh, lengths and most of the stuff is all in the same rack. So it's it's fairly uh, fairly short runs. Um, the other thing is it's less heat and uh, better latency. So and they're cheaper. So there's a lot of pluses to, to um, this type of connector when you're when you're running 10 gigabit. Um, this is um, most of the hard drives that I'm using in the uh, in the network storage are these 14 terabyte drives. I actually basically you know uh, bought out an entire Best Buy when these came on sale. Um, and they're just the USB hard drives that you can just like a 3.0 USB hard drive, but you can actually extract the drive. It's called drive shucking. And, um, I have an article on that. Um, most of these, these just work like completely normally in my server. Some of these drives, just to note, if you're going to try this, check into if they, there's a 3.3 volt pin, you may need to tape it if you want it to work with conventional, um, uh, machines, something to keep in mind, but Basically, you know, you're buying a, a USB hard drive and it has an enterprise grade drive in it. Like these are helium uh, filled, uh, either Western Digital Red or uh, Pros or Golds, essentially, uh, if you look up the model number. Um, for uh, the two and a half inch drives, this is mostly um, SSDs. Uh, so I picked up some uh, OS drives. I've got a you know, smaller 480 gig or um, enterprise SSDs uh, for the OS. And I usually have these in a RAID one and, uh, with ZFS. And then I've been, I just recently set up a Ceph cluster for the via, for the compute unit storage. Um, so I've got three of these, uh, 3.84 terabyte, uh, SAS drives, uh, in each of the, each of the machines. And I have one extra sp uh, as a spare. Um, and I wrote up some articles on that and I'll talk about Ceph a little bit later. Um, this is a part of a project that I'm I'm working on still. I have the hardware, but I haven't actually implemented it yet. Um, so I've got, there was a bit of a, there was an article on level one text talking about Optane and Wendell's a big fan of Optane. And I jumped on the fire sale and managed to get a couple of these units, the 118 gig uh, NVMe's and the, this 900P, I got it on Facebook marketplace at like $150, which was kind of insane. Um, so this is really high level um it's good for like caching it's um i know some people are more expertise at optane so I, i'm probably explaining it badly but basically the level one um q depth is very good and they are very hard to wear out they'll take a lot of write endurance um so that's going to be for caching um but this isn't implemented yet um the for networking i've got a bunch of unify gear i've got um pretty much all unify gear um which all runs in a single pane of glass on a unified controller. Um, it's very easy to use. Um, it does VLANs. The The networking gear, like the switching gear is actually quite good. Um, I have issues with their writing, routing uh, technology, but um, 
for for switching, it's actually pretty pretty reasonable. And then I've got a couple of their access points. Uh, I recently upgraded to the Wi-Fi six access points, so um, I'm actually linking my upstairs to my downstairs floors using one of these uh, wirelessly as a as a bridge. Um, so that's what I'm talking uh, to you on now. Uh, this is what the network looks like. It's uh, you know it, it's not your ideal network. Everything's chained together, which I know is not ideal and not actually good practice, um, but that's just the necessity of how the house is laid out and where the wiring is and what I could do. So most of this is in a rack in the basement. Um, and then I've got the uh, U6 Pro upstairs, and then I've got two switches chained to those. And these little eight port switches are really nice because they're, they're four port uh, power over ethernet. So I've got some things actually powering, um, like the access point is powered over ethernet. One of the phones is, um, you know, I've got a couple security cameras powered off of those, so it's actually quite nice. Um, and uh, this is what the connections in the in the basement look like. So you can see the SFP plus. I've got uh, four ports on the 48 port switch, and then I have the eight port aggregation switch, uh, and those are all 10 gigabit. And then on the right side there, you can see um, the one gigabit connections uh, going into the switch from um, uh, you know from from the house. Um, so for the router for all of this, I'm using a PFSense uh, Community Edition on an Intel NUC, and I'm using a little bit of VLAN trickery to get it to work because it only has one network jack. Um, so I've actually set up a WAN VLAN where the internet comes in and then that splits off uh, so that I can have it go to the go to the house. Um, and I could talk about VLANs a bit later, but uh, it's nice having a, a dedicated um, firewall, you know, router firewall device, uh, rather than trying to virtualize it. Um, these are all the VLANs, uh, that I'm running currently. Um, so there, there's a VLAN for the, for the network coming in, and then that goes into the, uh, one of those eight port switches. And then I've got the LAN and the data, um, are for regular usage. Uh, the guest network is basically over Wi-Fi only. So that's basically, if I have guests over, they can use the guest Wi-Fi. They can get out to the internet, but they can't see anything on any of the other networks it's restricted uh the camera network is um all the security cameras are on that uh, but they're the cameras themselves can't actually get out to the internet or anything so there's no you know there's been things in the news about eufy and their cameras and their live feeds were being basically broadcast on the internet these cameras can't even see the internet so whether you trust them or not they're they're restricted that way uh and then i've got some voice over ip stuff on a, a separate network and then uh, the Proxmox and the Ceph networks are basically just for the um, servers to talk to each other. And then I have a DMZ network where I run some of the applications that actually do hit the internet. So I know someone's going to ask, um, this is how much power I use with running all of this. Um, so you can see the amount of kilowatt hours I'm using on average. Um, the price, you know, the, the usage goes up in the summer because we're running air conditioning. Um, you know, so I'd say about 150 to $190 a month in power. Um, so it is what it is, but I figured someone would ask, so I'd just pull up the info on it. Um, and these are the suppliers that I use. Um, I've got fs.com has been really great for anything cabling wise. Uh, I get all my uh, ethernet cabling and uh, SFP cabling from them. I got some of the uh, patch panels from them. Um, they're great to deal with. They ship, they're fast, they're cheap. Um, definitely recommend them. If you need a contact, reach out to me, happy to do it. Um, Prime Specs, a contractor group in uh, in Kitchener, I think, um, and they're, that's where I got the rack from uh, and a bunch of the other stuff. Um, they're great to deal with. Um, 
and deploy depots in, I think they're in Quebec, uh, but they're, they're who I get a lot of my ubiquity gear from. I like dealing with them over dealing with ubiquity directly just because um, they basically take care of the RMA. If, if you had to RMA something, I, I haven't had to, um, but they'll take care of it. And, uh, and then you don't have to deal with the headache that is ubiquity support. And then a lot of the other stuff I get used, I get it on my Facebook marketplace. I get it on Reddit. Um, you know, so there's, there's a couple places I've bought some of my servers off from, uh, Delta server store, uh, messy, messy place in Toronto. Um, really good guys to deal with. Uh, I've bought a couple servers from them, never had a problem. They've stood by their products. So I would definitely recommend them. Um, so I guess the question now is, uh, what does he do with all this stuff? So I thought I'd talk about that a bit as well. There's a few questions in the chat. Do you want them now or at the end? Uh, why don't we wait till the end? I've got, uh, I've got a lot of slides <laughs> and then I, I, and we should have time for questions if that's okay. And I, I can't see the Great. questions right yep, now. That's fine. Is that a, okay. Um, so the main thing is I'm running three of these compute units. I'm the R630 and R640s are running Proxmox in a high availability cluster with, um, uh, with a high, sorry, in high availability in a cluster. So you could fail over virtual machines between these servers. Um, you can either set it up to do it automatically, or I can just move a virtual machine between servers seamlessly. The server basically doesn't even notice. Um, it stays up the entire time. You don't have to shut down to move. Um, I could have it set up so that if like I accidentally powered off one of these servers, the VMs would automatically spin up on another node. Um, and that took a while to set up. Uh, and I have articles on all that. Um, all three of these servers are sharing storage um, from those SSDs using Ceph, and that's built into Proxmox. Uh, so there's um, you know nine 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 uh, drives worth of data, but it's multiple redundancies because uh, I favor the re the resiliency of the data over the performance. Um, so I have a couple of the VMs running on Ceph, so their OS data gets replicated. Um, you can see that there's backup jobs in the in the bottom left there. Uh, so I have all the VMs being automatically backed up daily uh, to the network storage unit. Um, and uh, I also back up some of the data itself on top of just snapshotting the VMs. Um, this is what I'm running on these VMs mostly. Um, so I run a bunch of different things for the house. Uh, I run Bitwarden. I run Shinobi for the secure surveillance cameras. I run some Minecraft servers for some friends. Um, I'll talk about all, all of these. Uh, so the Bitwarden server, I just did this recently. I switched over from LastPass. Um, and yeah, I, I've seen all the articles on LastPass and a lot of the videos that have come out. And there's a lot of scary stuff with the breaches. So I rotated all my passwords. And I originally built uh, LastPass to run on AWS. But after setting it up, I felt safer having it locally. So there's no accessibility to the internet for LastPass. So I, I use it in the house and I don't even notice the difference and it's great. Uh, and if I need to use it from my phone, I can just open up my VPN um, and get in that way. And there's, you know, it's free, it's self-hosted, it's open source. Um, there are some paid plans if you want extra features. Um, I don't find that it's necessary. I'll probably pay for them anyway, just to support the you know, development. Um, or if you really want to go that way, there is an alternative uh, that someone's rewritten the entire server software in Rust, and that's called uh, Vault Warden. Um, so you've got a lot of options here, but I, I really like it. Um, and it's, uh, you know, taking, uh, switching over from LastPass to Bitwarden was really good. Um, 
I'm using Amcrest cameras uh, for my video recording uh, for surveillance in the house. So I've got cameras inside and outside the house. Uh, I like Amcrest because they have an open uh, H.264 or H.265 RTSP stream. A lot of the cameras that you find, like the Google Nests and the Eufy's and Lorex and all that, you can't access the streams directly. Uh, you have to use their network video recorder software um, or an app, or it has to go to the cloud. Not these. These I can tap in right to the stream uh, using, you know, um, VideoLand or uh, VLC. Or I can basically have the software, uh, Shinobi is what I'm using. I've tried ZoneMinder and I didn't really like it. Uh, it was very hard on my CPUs. This this is very lightweight uh, and it does all the recordings. Like I said, all the cameras are in a separate uh, VLAN. Uh, and then these record to a, a pool on the network server, the file storage server, which are running Western Digital Purple Drives, which are for surveillance. Um, and they're designed to be constantly written to. Um, so that's that's why I've got two drives and a mirror uh, to store the video surveillance footage. This is what uh, Shinobi looks like. Um, the the live feeds are a bit squished here because they're 4K um, widescreen. Um, so it squishes it to make it fit. But you can see um, you've got live feeds for all the cameras. You can go to individual ones. Uh, it does motion detection and re auto recording and um, you've got a calendar for it. Uh, it's pretty, pretty cool. And this is the quality for like a, for a full live feed. This isn't even in 4k, right? But, so it's, it's a pretty good quality camera. Like you can read license plates and whatnot if you need to. And it's all, it can all be motion triggered. Um, so I run a couple of Minecraft servers. I've spun these up and down. Um, I'm usually running a vanilla server on the latest version. Um, if you, if you're interested in Minecraft, uh, linuxtech.ca slash Minecraft, um, I did run some modded servers, but I found that these machines are not well designed for Minecraft because Minecraft needs high single core speeds, like clock speeds. And my servers have many cores, but lower clock speeds. And it seemed to struggle with a lot of the, um, a lot of the modded servers. So I'll probably stick to just, uh, vanilla. Um, but I've had a lot of people on here at, at some points and it's been a lot of fun to, to play with people. Um, so if you're interested, definitely check it out. Um, the other thing I did, and there's an article on my website about this, is I automated the entire install of Minecraft. Like on a, you could take a brand new, you know, Linux server, whether it's, um, you could do it if it's on Debian or Ubuntu or um, Amazon Linux 2 or basically uh, CentOS. And it'll basically do the entire install for you. So if you want to check that out, there's links to my GitHub uh, and the work I did on that. Uh, the other thing I run in the house is free PBX. Uh, I have a voice over IP server uh, in a VM that I've, I started this because I was working at a company that specialized in uh, voice over IP. Um, but I tried free PBX on my own and really liked it. So I've got a trunk through VoIP.ms. So that's the, the digital phone number. I've got a couple phone numbers that if you call those, uh, it routes to the to my server. Um, and I have a it's an IVR, an internal voice recorder. So like when you call, a, a, you know, you get the thank you for calling this company and you plus one for this, press two for that. I have that for the house. Um, I even have a little trick. So if it if it's a telemarketer, I, I send them to a special telemarketer hell. And if anyone's curious, I can tell you more about that. Um, I do have a couple hardware phones. They're mostly grand streams. I have a Cisco. It's, a, it's called an ATA where it converts a regular cordless phone to a... Um, uh, voice over IP phone. Uh, 
So I've got a couple of handsets through the house that use that. Um, and I, but I mostly use Zoiper, which is, um, uh, there's a, there's a version of the application for Android, for Linux, for Windows. Um, there is, it is, there is a paid version. You can use the free version. Um, I used to use Linphone, which is open source and free as well, but I didn't find the client very good. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's lots of options because SIP is such an open standard. There's, there's tons of options here. Um, this is what free PBX looks like, the latest version. So you can see the number of, um, connections, user connections I've got there. That kind of goes up and down as you log, as things log in and out. Um, you can see your network usage, um, lots of configuration options for who can access the system. Um, there's no port forwarding, which is nice. It's, it, it's, a, it, the connection goes outbound to VoIP.ms and that's it. So I didn't have to do anything special from a networking perspective. Um, the other thing I run is uh, a, un a unified controller. So this is what manages all the network gear. Um, you can run a hardware piece of network gear. Um, so either like a uh, unified cloud key or if they build in the unified controller into some of their routing software, um, but you can run it yourself uh, on the OS or as a container. So I'm running it in Docker as a container um, and it's, it's been pretty good to upgrade and, and keep up keep up to date and upgrading firmware and all that for all the all the network devices in the house. Um, here's a couple screenshots of what the what the controller looks like, and you can manage every single uh, piece of network gear from this one interface, uh, which is really nice. So you can see at the bottom there, I've got all my switches and all my access points, and all the VLANs are all controlled from here, and you can get some metrics. Um, so it's 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 pretty nice. Um, so I have, I back up that configuration regularly, especially before I do an upgrade. Um, and then, you know, I can upgrade the Docker container to the, to the latest version. Um, the other thing I run is Plex. I'm sure some of you know about Plex. So I've got, uh, you know, media so that I can share to my family members, um, some like family photos and things like that. Um, there is a free open source alternative called Jellyfin. Um, I haven't used it. I started with Plex a long time ago and, it's just because it's so ubiquitous that it has, there's a client for every TV now, every phone, all that. I just find it's really good. And I bought the paid, the paid lifetime license. So um, it's not a big deal for me, but I've, I have some friends that use Jellyfin and they swear by it. So um, it might be worth checking out. Uh, and then the last thing I really use the home lab for is dev environments. And, and this is kind of alluding to what I was talking about uh, that I could do a talk on later on. Um, whenever I'm doing coding and I'm, you know, playing around with something, I'll just spin up a virtual machine, do all my work in there and then trash it when I'm done. Um, you know, you can SSH into a VM using Visual Studio Code. I really like that. Um, so like, for for example, I was doing a course on Postgres and I spun up a VM, installed Postgres and did all my work in there and did all my coursework in there. And then I saved that uh, to GitHub when I was done. Um, so there's a lot of flexibility here. And it's also nice for practicing with things like Ansible. Um, so if you're writing automation scripts, um, you can, uh, you know, you can, you can test that against uh, endpoints by setting up, spinning up some machines. Um, the last thing I think is the, is the, is what I'm running my, my network storage on and that's TrueNAS scale. Um, so the original FreeNAS or TrueNAS core is based on free PS, free BSD. And that has some limitations on some of the things it can do. Like I don't think it handle Docker containers that uses jails instead, uh, or LXC, Actually, I think LXC is, uh, is something else. Um, but yeah, I know it uses jails for sort of like containers, whereas TrueNAS Scale actually supports uh, Docker and Kubernetes. So it does its own applications through uh, a lightweight version of Kubernetes called Rancher. 
Um, and it has virtual machine support. So you can virtualize and have different OSs on there if you need it. Um, you know, it does offsite backups automatically. It runs ZFS uh, as a file system. So it's got a lot of good functionality there, self-healing. Um, I'm not even up to speed on all the things you can do with ZFS. There's, it's very robust. Um, and one of the nice things is the application support is, is that there's a, a group called True, True Charts. And True Charts, and I'll, I'll come to that in a second, but uh, this is just what the, uh, the display looks like for, for TrueNAS because you can manage pretty much all of it through a user, the graphical user interface. Um, but True Charts has a lot of uh, software. You can just deploy it instead of having to write a Helm chart like a Kubernetes Helm chart, you just download it and you go in into their little app marketplace and you can um, select the apps you want and then just load them. Um, so this is mostly what I use TrueNask for. Uh, it's mostly virtual machine backup. I probably have like six terabytes of dumps of uh, virtual machines and server data. I've got gigs and gigs of server data. I've got a lot of my old backups and you know personal pictures and videos and uh, the surveillance footage, like I said, is on those two uh, Western Digital purples, um, and I and I it's on my to do list to get better offsite backup automation. Um, below here, I, I'm running my Pi-hole on TrueNAS. I try to keep the core services on the um, on the NAS because that way, like the compute units aren't dependent on anything else to start up. I used to have problems with that. Um, I haven't set all these other things up yet. These are just the, uh, some other applications that are available. Um, so this is what the storage pools look like. Uh, so you can see I've got quite a bit of storage on here. Um, this, there's a separate pool for storage and a separate pool for the cameras. Uh, and then it runs my pie hole as well on its on its own IP and it's just a separate port. So I've got most of the machines in the house pointing to the pie hole uh, for their DNS. And I actually have my own kind of internal DNS resolution for uh, my applications. Um, and these are just some of the projects I'm, I'm planning on doing in the future. Uh, I might not get to all of them for a while, but, um, you know, setting up my own uh, build server in Jenkins, um, setting up a Kubernetes cluster is a big one that I've, I'd like to get to. Um, it's one of the reasons I got as many compute nodes as I did is because I want to be able to have uh, Kubernetes running on multiple machines and being able to move, have high availability, high availability and move around. Um, Docker containers, move around workloads, things like that. Um, right now I'm running most of my Docker containers on, a, on just a VM, and I'd like to switch that to Portainer. Um, just the graphical interface seems a little nicer. And then there's just some other projects. I know like observability is a big one. I don't have a lot of observability and logging, nothing centralized. Um, so I'd like to get to that. Um, for my experience from setting all this up, these are just some of the things I would recommend if you're considering a home lab is think about what you really need it for. Um, think about if you really need to run it at, at your house or if you could do it in the cloud, it might be cheaper and there's less of an upfront investment. Um, think of, you know, your power and your cooling and the noise and the heat because that's a lot of it. Um, and also think about where your bottlenecks are. If you're running, if your network is one gigabit, you might have some trouble. Um, you know, consumer grade hardware. I've got a lot of enterprise grade hardware. Most of, most of it's used. It's pretty economical, um, but sometimes you can get away with consumer grade hardware and that's fine. Um, and the big one I'd say is have a backup plan. RAID is not a backup. Um, as an example, I wrote a couple articles on this, but I was having problems with my Minecraft server on one of these nodes because 
they I'm using RAID for the OS for the drives, um, but the, the actual RAID controller failed, and it was starting to write garbage to the um, to the backups, and then it corrupted all the VMs on that machine. So it's a really good thing that I had backups set up, or I would have lost all that data, even though I had RAID, even though I was I had redundant hard drives. It didn't matter. Um, and if for resources, uh, these are just some of the places that I use. Uh, so I would definitely check them out. Um, most of these are on YouTube. Um, there's a couple subreddits I, I would recommend. Um, most of these have websites of their own. So definitely check them out if you're, if you're considering doing the home lab. The home lab show has a great number of podcasts where they talk about different aspects of running home lab. Um, it gets really advanced. Um, so some of it's above my head, but I really like it. Um, and I would definitely check out some of their videos. Um, so that's about it. Um, I figured I'd hopefully leave some time for questions and a demo if, uh, if they want it, if you guys wanted anything. Um, so yeah, I see a lot of, uh, I think, uh, Paul, you said there's a lot of questions. So let's go through, I'll go through what's in the uh, chat first. Yeah. It's uh, all on the chat. Okay. Uh, phone screen. I don't know what that's all about. Ron, how to present on KDE connect, but it's phone to desktop. Oh, I see. You're talking about for you to present. Okay. Um, Yes, it is. It is loud. Uh, I'm used to it. It's like white noise. I wear headphones whenever I'm in the basement with my workstation. Um, so I'm used to it. Um, but if the, and they run like they are screaming jets when they start up, but once they start to idle, they're fine, you know, and they occasionally they will spin up the fans will spin up, but it's really not that bad for me. Um, I, you know, for my next house, when I move, I, I definitely would love to have, isolated an isolated room with airflow and cooling and power for the for the lab because um yeah you hear it you can hear it almost all the way upstairs um just barely but it's not too bad um sfp that has rj45 instead of optics yes there are sfp uh connectors that you can buy sfp adapters for rj45 you can use cat 6a uh for 10 gigabit i didn't go with that because the adapters that I found, and I had one of them, but they were about $80 each just for the SFP adapter. Uh, and they get hot and they use a lot of power. And the conversion from the media in conversion from SFP to RJ45 adds latency. Um, so that's why I went with the direct attached copper where it's, it is copper, um, but there's no interface. There's no media change. Uh, so it's much uh, quicker. Um, and as for Jeff, yes, it is basically a router on a stick. Um, it is a bit of a bottleneck because it's a one gigabit uh, switch and the NUC is a one gigabit uh, in and I have one gigabit internet. And I've I've done speed tests and I can get one gigabit download, but um, I'm sure that the WAN will bottleneck me at some point. Um, so yeah, uh, Mikolai, you're, you asked if I use VLANs, do I use tags that go to servers and hosts? Uh, yes. Um, most of the VLANs are tagged. Um, so the, mm, that's, that's, a, that's, it's tough to answer that. I, uh, yes, so you can tag the traffic. I'm sure the traffic on the switches is tagged. Uh, most of the, most of the sw way I have this set up is I've got specific switches, like specific interfaces. So like these X number of ports on this switch are for this VLAN. And then they just talk to each other. Um, so I don't think the actual, like, I don't, ha I haven't had to set up tagging on the servers themselves necessarily in most cases. Um, I hope that answers that question. 
Um, I'm not using link aggregation. I had thought of it. I, I've run out of space with 10 gigabit lines. Um, so I haven't done uh, link aggregation. Um, when I start hitting bottlenecks, I will probably have to put in some kind of upgraded backbone, but I'm not there yet. Some of the higher end ubiquity stuff can do 25 gigabit networking as a backbone, but I don't see the need for it. I think 10 is, is a good place right now. Um, yes, fs.com, uh, deltaservicestore.com. They've been great. Um, the the pie hole is virtualized on the TrueNAS server. Um, and let's see here, uh, net data. I don't know what that, what, I don't know what you mean by net data. Uh, Mikolai, I don't know if you want to talk about that. Uh, dust control. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So net data is the tool to collect, um, different statistics on your servers uh, very fast, very nicely. And then that can be used uh, for Grafana as a source. And I'll put a link uh, point into it. Oh, thank you. Uh, Proxmox has some basic data in the dashboards, but I would like to set up some some collection data collection to send to Grafana uh, eventually so I can have what, one page with all that. Um, dust control, I clean everything regularly. You know, I vacuum around the servers. I've used the compressed air cans. I, I, you know, whenever I take any, whenever I shut a server down to do maintenance, I dust it out and then I clean out the back of it. Um, yeah. Uh, how much, how much time do I spend on steady state maintenance? I'm not sure what you mean by steady state. Um, you'll have to, you'll have to, oh, doing, up. Uh, uh, updates, updates and cleaning. Okay. Um, I don't have that automated right now. I'll be honest. Um, that's part of what I'll probably do some more work with Ansible to get the updates to automate themselves. Um, and yeah, cleaning, I think I've, I've, you know, I do that. I do that pretty well. Uh, does running free PBX virtually give me latency and stuttering? Absolutely not. It's been flawless. Um, it's running on Proxmox. Uh, it, you know, People call my house. I don't have problems. I call out, you know, no problems. I, I call, I make phone calls on, on Zoiper on my Linux desktop all the time. Don't have any issues. Um, so that's all the questions in chat. Uh, is there anything you guys want to see? I don't know how much time we're at, how, how we're at time for time. Another five minutes would be fine. Sure. Okay. Well, we'll probably do other questions. Oh, you want to know about telemarketer hell? Uh, okay. So if you call my house phone, it says dial option. If you're a telemarketer or solicitor, press option one. Um, that doesn't go to a person. It goes to a robot called Lenny. Uh, and Lenny will just talk your ear off. He's just a nice old man. It'll wait. It pauses between conversations and he just has some random things that he'll start saying and he'll talk about. Uh, his kids and he'll talk about his, you know, you know, does he need that? Whatever. Yes. I've actually, and I record the calls. I have the calls. Um, I've gotten telemarketers. I've gotten some accidental people and who were very nice to talk to Lenny, unfortunately, where they didn't listen to the IVR and hit option one not, rather than listening. Um, yeah. If I could do, if I could do uh, uh, audio converting to text to chat GPT, that might be more, that might be smarter. But Lenny, the point of Lenny was to waste people's time. And you can find Lenny 
on YouTube, you'll find recordings of people talking to Lenny. It's, it's not a new thing, but I implemented it on Free PBX. Uh, and it really wasn't that hard to do. No, it's not part of Free PBX. I actually had to set up an extension. There's, there's guides on how to set up Lenny. Um, and you can find the code for Lenny, which has the audio uh, clips that are used. Um, I Let me just check LennyTroll.com. I don't know. Yes, that is him. That's it. absolutely it. Um, so I have Lenny set up. Uh, I also have a special telemarketer hold jail. Uh, so it's extension 666. And I could transfer people to that. And it puts them in a, con- a constant loop of horrible hold music forever um, until they hang up. Uh, so that's another fun thing that I, I set up on free PBX. I haven't had to use it very much, um, but it is definitely there. I was trying to find a way to be able to, whenever you get those spam calls come into your phone, I wanted to find a way to transfer them to that uh, hold area, that hold jail, but I haven't figured out how to do that yet. I see Paul is typing. But yeah, so I have a lot of other projects that I want to do um, and observability and all that uh, is uh, something I want to get to. Yes, putting them in, in, a, in, a, in a forever jail would cost money, but sometimes it's just worth it. Uh, monitoring and alerting RAL is something I want to get more into. Um, the monitoring, uh, like this is where I want to get Grafana and I want to get... Um, you know, some other software like for logging, alerting, um, things like that set up. I do have some things that will alert me. It will just email me. Um, that's in the individual application though. Um, so like free PBX as an example, will email me when there's, when there's certain problems. Um, I've had, I think TrueNAS will do some email notifications as well, but I don't have anything constructively set up yet for that. It's, it's, it's in progress. Um, the initial message on the IVR is just, an automated, you know, thank you for calling my house. You know, you've reached this person. Press option one if you're a telemarketer solicitor to reach me at home. Press two if you'd like to dial by extension. Press three. The thing is, is that anyone, I, I, re- I rarely get anyone actually call on the house phone because all the robots, all the robocalling drop as soon as they get the automated message. So I haven't had to whitelist it or do anything like that. Um, the reason that the telemarketers don't press two is because it's usually robocalls and 90% of the robocalls get dropped. And if they do call, if they do actually, you know, get a, a, a robocall connect to my robot or my IVR, um, they've probably missed that part. And they just hit one thinking that, oh, I'll just hit one. And then they get Lenny. Yeah, I'll I'll definitely check out NetData, uh, Nikolai. There's a lot of... There's a lot of monitoring and logging kind of stuff I, ha- I still have yet to set up. Um, yeah, uh, hopefully you guys found that interesting. It's a lot of fun stuff. I do a lot of infrastructure things at work and, you know, I find having the home lab available to kind of playground around and helpful um, and do my own thing. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, if there's other questions, just throw them in the chat and I'll answer in the chat, but I think I'll, uh, I'll let the other guys uh, talk for a bit. So uh, I'll, I don't know if I need to pass my presenter token back or if you can take it. I will take it. All right. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you very much, Jason. That was very awesome. Your, your pictures were really good, too. Uh, glad. <laughs>
Yes, I think I'll, I'll echo Ron's sentiment. I'm a wee bit envious as well. How much does this cost, like an equipment? Sounds well, like a lot. Uh, I would say it's a lot. I would say a lot of it, like I said, I buy used. I don't buy brand new. Um, so I save quite a bit that way. Um, you can get an Adele Power Edge R630 for maybe $600. Um, and then you have to kit it out with RAM and hard drives and all that. But the base, the, I've seen people selling them on R slash Homolab sales, $500, $600 for, uh, for a one use server. Um, if you buy them through a, re- a reseller like Delta Server Store or useservice.ca, you can go and build the server on their website and see the pricing. Um, and it's going to be more expensive than if you do it yourself. Um, but you, like I found these good deals like that, um, that, uh, what is it? The Opt- Optane 900P. If you go on Newegg and you try to buy it, it's going to be over a thousand dollars. And I found it for like two hundred. Um, you know, and it was slightly used, but it had no right. It, it had been used, but it, there was nothing wrong with it. Um, and it was just wor- worth you know picking up. So, yeah, it's definitely possible. And ten gigabit Ethernet, ten gigabit networking is really accessible now. When you look at some of the Microtech stuff, um, if you want to go that way, it's very cheap. And if there's something wrong with the server, it needs firmware update, then you also have home lab fun. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I've, I've run into problems. Like I said, I had that, I had that raid controller fail on me and it corrupted all my data. Uh, I had to figure that out and I had to pull the thing out and figure out how to replace the raid controller, but it, most of it's modular. It's not too bad. Um, it's different working on, uh, you know, a rack server versus a, you know, a, a standard PC, but. The principles are pretty similar. You can find videos online on how to do most of it. Um, the nice thing with all these servers is that they use iDRAC. The Dell servers use iDRAC, which is their remote. Uh, there's a re- remote website that you can go to. There's a separate Ethernet port. Uh, and you can, you know, basically see the server headless. You don't have to connect a monitor and keyboard or anything. You just connect to the iDRAC port in the web browser and you can do almost all of your work that you would need to do on configuring the server through there. So firmware updates are all done through iDRAC. Um, I can, you know, view the view the actual physical, you know, graphic interface, the console, and see what the heck it's doing, or go into the BIOS, or you know, update firmware from iDRAC. So that's one reason I went with all Dell servers, is I really like their their way of doing that. Yeah, exactly. You can see the boot sequence, the BIOS. You can see the life cycle. Um, I can talk about cloud, but I think we should let Mikolai do his presentation. Um, there is there is a Java client for the iDRAC, but there's also a browser-based one. And I've switched to just using the browser-based one because it's easier. I was going to say, well, if Mikolai wants to do his presentation, he needs to stop asking questions in the chat. He's just <laughs> yeah. going to keep continuing the current presentation. Yeah. Well, it's a sort of a takeaway into the presentation I can do about just setting up a backend uh, for real production because all of those things about net data and uh, setting it all up so that you don't have to show to the physical servers in a, a co-location place. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> so my setup is basically... It's HP servers, but they have their own ILO, ILO, and they have it all connected. Now, 
I picked up some somebody gave out free uh, switch, which is like hundred megabit. It's not even gigabit. It's hundred megabit. It's an older switch, but I put all of this ILO things into a separate network because you want it to be just physically separate signaling. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> and that kind of helps a lot. All right. So let me start the second talk. Hello, my name is Mikolai. Um, so I want to present you uh, the privacy safe. So uh, privacy safe is a continuation, uh, essentially a work uh, that uh, we have been doing uh, and it, it's a product uh, that uh, will be uh, given to the public and uh, a product like as an open source software on one hand and uh, as a service for which we'll uh, want to uh, sort of get paid. So, oops. Okay, I got disconnected. Paul, can you give me a token again? Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> I wonder if the same happened with Andrew. Guys, can you say something? Because I don't hear anything. Oh. I, I can hear you again. You did drop out for a second, but you seem to be back now. Okay. When did I, did I on the first slide or go into the second slide? Uh, you, you went onto the second slide, said something like, oops, what's going on? And oh. then you went silent for a bit. Okay. I'd That's say just start again. <laughs> <laughs> you were only one slide in. No, 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 no. This is a magic of video. We are going to cut... <laughs> Unnecessary piece, and it will be nice and smooth. So, Mikolai, if it if it turns out that it gives you that kind of problem again, then I can take presenter and I can just move slides forwards while you talk. Okay, uh, yeah, but I don't think it's going to happen. So, great. So, just... why don't you why don't you start again or proceed with your presentation? Uh, well, so privacy safe uh, is a product that we're going to make. And, uh, and it's a continuation of the work with the 3N web. But, um, so all products are windows in some possible worlds, right? And, uh, the new things that we want to see. And if things were, uh, yeah. So <clears throat> we can think about the stuff that we do as, uh, you know, as that little tree. Um, so, some products are easy because they are kind of low-hanging fruits, but uh, when the hanging fruits are set out on this 
foundation that is rotten, then no matter what you do, like you won't get a good result. And um, so I would I would say that you know amount of effort that we put in and we had to put in is because uh, some of the things in our technical world are things like uh, their framework. It's a branches for your fruits and the foundation, like trunk is your foundation. And uh, users uh, really need just an app, some user experience. That's what they want. Uh, And um, so we are slowly going from this place to the trees and then to the fruits. And, um, since it's a home, hometown talk, <laughs> uh, I, I, I want to talk more about the, uh, this foundation and development. Uh, um, so <clears throat> last months, maybe last months, I've, uh, found, so, uh, one of our guys on our partner team. Uh, in Dignity Tech, uh, who uh, want to write this user experience, but on a mobile, and they're in Europe, they send a link to auto-merge uh, software. Uh, it's an auto-merge uh, on a GitHub. It's an interesting project, but it points uh, uh, to this uh, essay that says uh, local-first software. Uh, and it's interesting because uh, this guy is from Inc. and uh, this thing covers it. Um, so uh, this uh, lab uh, with this URL, these guys come to the point of like, hey, we want a different foundation of how we write the software. And they come out and say, like, we want no spinners, you know, so that the work is not trapped on a single device and the network uh, should be optional. And if it goes down, you shouldn't be dying. And uh, the points, uh, point seven, uh, six, they come out and yeah, by the way, it gives you security and uh, privacy. So in a way, uh, in a way, uh, we, uh, we, with the three and web, uh, the product or, or the base on which uh, the privacy safe stands, basically come they come to this f- from another side. So they start from a usability, how it can be used, and uh, for us, we instead come to this. We start from the consideration of privacy and. Uh, what should be done in a client-server architecture, and then we come to a need, oh, by the way, uh, there needs to be some local software. Uh, the way you write the software it becomes kind of different. I mean, simpler, uh, but the same kind of different. So uh, let me switch to the... <clears throat> Yeah, so uh, the 3N web itself, I gave a couple talks about them, but now these things uh, we officially kind of pushing towards uh, making it standards. 
uh, as it was promised. And these are like architectural nodes, which we put under this IEEE open thing. Uh, but at least it gives the point uh, for us to write something as a, in a document for format. Um, from which uh, to yield a nice documentation and b uh, some dry standards um, so and uh, we we have this section motivation and i, I was like uh, relieved uh, to see another group of people with this local first software uh, and uh, it, on a the slide there's like uh, two links uh, to the talks uh, and in the first talk, uh, uh, the guy is saying that they were doing this for like five, six years already, different experimentations. And uh, it's funny that certain things like about using of IPFS and this all different, just very pure peer-to-peer -peer things for storage, they have those uh, inefficiencies. Uh, and uh, this is kind of things that we have seen ourselves, but we it, it was possible to say that we were biased because we wanted to have like servers. Um, uh, nonetheless, <clears throat> uh, nonetheless, uh, the motivation. So in the motivation, like the part itself, like uh, wh when is the last time you've seen the standard where they talk about motivation for like, why do we want to do this? And then they talk about, you know, the human part. <laughs> And I think in, uh, I guess it could have been seen in 2002. There was this tussle in cybersecurity white paper created, uh, with nice talk about that, you know, all of those concerns about information flow, they will go into some funky direction and copyright starts to be seen as a tool, um, as a weapon, uh, rather say, uh, but in, 2020, uh, the IETF wrote, uh, or somebody in IETF wrote this RFC about saying that, hey, we should pri prioritize users. And, uh, <clears throat> and yeah, and we do this local software and it's because uh, some things are missing, right? And uh, we have elements of PGP, SpiderOak, Signal, but they're like single applications that solve the problem, but not in a systemic way, not in a systemic way. So that's why the, we want the standards. So anyhow, in this wishes, in this wishes, I, I wrote a funny thing. I said, hey, I want this longevity. As a user, I want longevity. Uh, and I was thinking like, maybe I'm too high on this or something. Uh, and then uh, the guys from the local software, they talk about it. Like, yeah, that's what we want. We want our digital arti artifacts to be with us. They shouldn't disappear when some vendor goes away. Um, yeah. So th this is kind of interesting that uh, uh, what we have been doing and uh, our paths cross with other people who cross in a good sense that we come to the same kind of conclusions. Um, and technically, so it's uh, technical things, they point us in the same direction. So 
uh, I thought I'll do a recap of this uh, thing. So 3nWeb basically, uh, it's a principle of list, 3N stands for principle of list authorities for client and server communication. It's like no plain text on the server, no unnecessary metadata, and as a result, there's nothing to abuse on the server. So, uh, yeah, and the first N is like our end-to-end -end encryption things. Uh, and the second N is like a metadata. And everybody is saying like, how do we uh, make sure that it doesn't leak or something like that. And I guess we are so far is the only uh, systematic solution for this. And I think because we talk about this, uh, how we do federation. Uh, so federation usually uh, is called uh, this thing where a user talks to his or her home server, home, it means some vendor or organization, and the user delegates everything, all of this talk to the server, and servers have to cooperate in order for data to pass between peers where by peers, I mean actual users. Uh, and uh, this has a problem because in order for this uh, to work, the servers, they have to know as much as user knows. So for example, matrix server, when it has end-to-end um, -end encryption enabled, it still knows uh, that Bob and Dallas talk and when. And uh, uh, that's a classical federation. The metadata leak and another part of it is that any big vendor uh, may stop this um, cooperation and as a result will chop off uh, the space chop of the user base and that's not nice and that what has happened already a few times in history it's Google it's Slack that has done that um, yeah so uh, so but the simple answer is actually to have a federation in a way think of it as a user experience so how is user uh, for one organization can actually get to the users from another organization. And that's the user side of what federation means for me as a user. And that experience can be done with what has been happening on the web all along. Uh, we just never called it that way. So, um, so when, and the web is helped by this presence of DNS. So essentially some naming system. So when the user knows naming, uh, then the other person, the peer can be found. Their, their resources can be found. And that's essentially uh, the trick. And then uh, uh, what you do is that uh, whatever messages pass through the server, they have to be end-to-end -end encrypted. That's number one. And we know how to do it. It's public encryption, uh, mixed and all that, uh, pu public key cryptography. 
but at the same time, uh, the other side, uh, the guest, so the other side should be pseudonymous or anonymous to the server. Um, so it's better to always uh, set things up this way. And uh, yeah, that sort of solves the trick of uh, reducing the metadata that is available to the servers. Uh, and uh, with the 3N web, we also make sure that we don't insist on any particular transport here, because really, uh, if you say, oh, how about uh, I, you, I go via Tor? Um, that's one thing. Another thing is that uh, gRPC, uh, this Google protocol for uh, servers talking to each other, gRPC and protobuf, maybe you've heard about it. It's actually just serialization that is used in gRPC. Uh, they, uh, it provides an interesting lesson that uh, there are only like four types of connections in gRPC. One is request reply, and then another one is like uh, sending back and forth messages. And basically the duplex can be if it's like one person just says like, hey, you, the other side, please, I'm waiting for you. And that's exactly the same as observable obs uh, reactive extensions uh, pattern of, it's called observables uh, in programming. So in that way, we don't even have to go further than HTTP uh, setup uh, for how you do requests. Uh, but uh, when we say an HTTP level, we don't assume HTTP 1. We always, it, it must be with TLS. It's probably better to be like HTTP 2 or 3, whatever new comes um, to go faster on the link. Uh, yeah, so there's actually no need to reduce or remove the existing la layers. They can just be rearranged in such a way that our attack doesn't spill out the metadata about what we do. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, so having said that. So the implementation. Uh, so implementation re in reality is uh, phone uh, or your computer, and it needs to have uh, an OS-like layer that is doing some of these uh, utility connections to the servers, because uh, when the protocols are standardized, it's essentially utilities like storage and communication. Um, and it should provide some simple interfaces for the apps that are on top. So those uh, low-hanging fruits uh, that should be easy, uh, easily creatable by developers on one hand, and that's why all of this dynamics about 3N web, how, what's the protocols formed, all of that better be hidden. Uh, and as much as it's possible into some other layer and becomes like operating system. On the other, on the other hand, uh, what we do in privacy safe, uh, our applications, we're doing them uh, on a web technology, basically 
JavaScript HTML that gets rendered uh, in the Chrome frame. And these Chrome frames, uh, as a, like a browser, they're actually very good sandboxes. And that makes a, a very good environment so that, say, a developer writes some application, but that application also gets some input from somewhere. And if that input breaks it, um, you know, hacker hacks it, uh, the explosion should be limited. And that limitation, like whatever craft goes into making a web browser secure, at mostly uh, work into making the Chrome uh, frame secure. So <clears throat> initially, actually, when we started doing the three and web, uh, it was just one thing. But then later on, uh, the app layers kind of separated, and this base layer it was in a web worker, <laughs> and then it slowly moved out to the point where. Um, to the point where we have uh, these relationships where it's just connections on which uh, some messages are passed around and those messages are essentially protobuf serialized forms and uh, <clears throat> the this OS layer uh, and this product that we'll call privacy safe, uh, uh, you know, has this structure. It exposes like, some capability to the applications and it deals with all this utility services uh, itself directly. And it's already a what developers do. So they have an, uh, some code there is uh, starts on the device. The computation happens on the device. And then what does it do? How does it store data? Uh, does it uh, synchronize the storage? Uh, which part of the file gets synchronized? Stuff like that. These are uh, the things that are like kind of new in this uh, safer world. But also, as we've seen from local first guys, this is the world where everybody will come if they want to have convenient stuff that runs on many devices uh, without the centralized servers that snoop on them or on which everybody depends. So anyhow, uh, as I said, like this uh, repository uh, has pointers. Uh, it's a start of nice documentation. I'm trying to make it as human as possible with pictures. So, for example, this... Uh, no, uh, this is less interesting. Uh, the mailer ID protocol is interesting. So... Um, These are capabilities. Uh, you see, the, we'll just need to add some uh, some docs. It's essentially, code exists. Uh, it just uh, uh, was maybe 
code exists, but we'll just say that capability definition is here, and the capability definition is a uh, TypeScript um, file uh, definition, for example. And around it, you can say what has been given. Uh, or uh, what is the uh, what is the protobuf definition? So uh, same way, protobuf files are defined there. <clears throat> so uh, so docs we can quickly pass. So most important, like uh, this whole thing about federation, is that. It's all about also naming. Naming is important. And DNS is just one of the system that is naming. And like there's an immediate idea of how you can use Tor services uh, using this uh, well-known resource RFC 5785 uh, in, in order to have uh, naming uh, totally inside of the Tor hidden services. And that's, that's what we will do when we have enough time slash funds, because when you have funds, you can arrange for time um, to implement that also like the store world uh, that will, um, through which the communication can happen. <clears throat> yeah, so, so far, the main important uh, uh, protocols are three, identity, messaging, and storage. So the the messaging is like that standard picture for the web federation, just particular different servers. Uh, and the storage is also the same, like, uh, like this. Of course, users, uh, I mean, developers uh, who see the capability uh, they are not uh, sending the raw stuff. Uh, they just already get uh, here. It will be file system for the storage and for messaging is just an object saying send a message or how the progress goes. Uh, yeah. Oh, but mailer ID is kind of an interesting one because uh, we haven't invented it. We reused one. Uh, it was how do you get an identity so that the identity provider is not tracking where you use your identity? And as it boils down, it's a browser ID, but browser ID is very simple, similar how you use your certificates on the web uh, for the websites. I think Kinderish, basically because it's a chain of certificates. Someone signed my certificate, and, I, and if I trust the root certificate, uh, it's fine. So uh, the problem with the browser ID is that uh, this first direction was done in the browser, and instead of uh, saying that the browser must implement something not within the um, not within the web page, but something inbuilt into this place where you have tabs, when you where you have buttons, in a place where your plugins goes. Uh, they insisted that the sign-in uh, can go through the web uh, page, 
That is the hole that was used by hackers. And after that, we had a slew of, you know, papers that, you know, browser ID is broken, blah, 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 blah. And this way we have an open ID right now, totally trackable by Facebook and Google instead of this browser ID that could be better. And uh, the cryptography is just works. The problem is in with using this, um, the browser part. The browser part in a way how the web page uses it. So uh, it turns out that if you have a user ID, it's your password, uh, you, you get some certificate and with that certificate you can sign your key and all of us, uh, your public key and give it to somebody you want to talk and that's your solution to the uh, how other person can find your public key on the web. All of a sudden, it's one of the answers to the problem for which, for example, Web of Trust was trying to solve. Um, so yeah. Nicola, you have some yeah. questions in the chat. Do you want them now or at the end? Uh, I'll come to them <laughs> uh, for for the for the version. So, um, yeah. And at the same time, that mailer ID is the thing which can be used like a browser ID, which I log in into the server. And uh, uh, yeah, for which I also come a little later. Uh, yeah, so let's come back to the... Uh, So that's a local soft, and this is a 3N web. Okay, this is strange. Do you have it zoomed or not? How do you see the picture? Looks like a vertical, like a portrait, like a cell phone, digital feudalism, and I don't see the entire picture. Uh, no. Is it fine right now? Oh, okay. Somehow it's zoomed out. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, somehow. All right. So one page means is um, picture is messed up and then it turns into this zoomed version. So anyhow, so we have an evolution. Uh, we come from the world with the way you have a centralized everything. And uh, then we add end-to-end -end encryption. And then we reduce the metadata. And that's what the 3N web is. And uh, talking about, so this move where your uh, computation moves to the client side, it makes necessarily your coding a local first uh, approach software first. So this is how, like, uh, it's interesting that we've been doing our stuff and there's other group of people who come to these uh, things themselves. Uh, and uh, they talk about RD basically some kind of more com uh, complex stuff. Um, 
what is it? Conflict free data types. Yeah. And the guy who actually sent me the link, he was doing the master degree in, in that subject. That's why he knew about it. Uh, but so in a sense, uh, coming already to the demo, <laughs> uh, and, um, you see, not completely baked. So to answer the question, 1445, it's slightly functional, but it's not completely baked. And uh, there's another funny thing is that, uh, we have things that have been doing much better stuff in terms of user usability. And then we go to some, we do something new and then end user kind of, it reduces a little bit, you know, because it's, you change and underline things a bit. Uh, so that's why we're kind of still in flux. Um, uh, but yeah, I'm looking forward to actually tell you when uh, this, uh, uh, when privacy safe can be used. So that, 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 that would be uh, a simple thing. Uh, basically, that, that that's the next thing. So uh, you write, the download will be something like that. Uh, at this moment, it's up image, but it's essentially we had all of the DEBs and RPM can be put together. Uh, the base uses Electron, but um, it looks like Tauri Studio uh, comes up and it can be used in a way. Um, in a way, let us go to the picture. Yeah. In a way, what we want, we want for these apps some frame, web frame. And Tario Studio, they are actually capturing that and they have a wrapper around web view on Linux, on Mac, on Windows, and on Android and on iOS. And uh, my feeling is that the end product later on will be uh, this layer written in Rust uh, that tends on for each application a separate operating system process. Uh, for now, it's done that it's a, a, an Electron app that starts the process. Uh, and the process can be either graphical user interface or it can be a service. Uh, so while I'm talking about it, um, just so that's already a downloaded thing. Uh, it starts up. I already have uh, myself in there. Uh, hope that I remember the password correctly, because if you lose the password, there's no way to get to your data. Um, yeah. So certain things are uh, uh, miss here. So for example, there's like just two applications shown here, but there's actually way more applications here. So this, this is bugs. Uh, yeah. Uh, note how uh, we have a taskbar and we are playing with the uh, with this approach where when I log in, uh, my applications also show up in the 
free desktop menus. And the free desktop menus, it means like this is Mint desktop, it will work, it's Ubuntu desktop, and then even PinePhone, uh, some of this uh, Plasma Mobile, I believe, it's a uh, free desktop, where basically you put into some folder a little file saying that I have this application, and when you click on that link, it will start uh, this uh, essentially uh, the process will recognize that it's already running and the main process will turn on and uh, open your application. <clears throat> so in comparison to the previous demo that I've been doing so far, it's kind of same user interfaces, but uh, I think like we, we we are still coming to these uh, fruits. The only uh, element that I want to add, and to, I've been working kind of in the last days, is this idea that besides applications, three uh, and web should have sites. So what site is so? When I have mail or storage on my uh, device, it's my stuff completely and only mine. But in my company, I have that place with net data, which I want to open and see what, how my servers are doing. So there are two, two agents, me on one side and a company on another side. And this is not a site from which I browse and I go in and out of it. No, no, no. That's a work site. And for this, uh, uh, the site will come at, so application right now is essentially some web, JavaScript, uh, HTML that gets served from the local place. And the sessions that do that should be restricted differently to just, for example, serve uh, stuff from one website or uh, have some code already stored or cached locally. And so, for example, for the site key in 3 and web, uh, it will have the storage. So it doesn't need cookies. Uh, it doesn't even need sessions. Because you're, you, you write like it should act like as if it's a local application on a device. At the same time, this site will not have an option of just walking away and browsing. And uh, whoever writes the site, that developer, should not be forced to also think about how you mitigate a cross-origin uh, attacks, all that stuff. Because I find that basically, yeah, developers may do this, but, you know, it's a craft that uh, is there because the browsers allow that kind of mix and match, uh, which is fine for the public stuff. The browser, the regular web is very nice for the public stuff, like, you know, scientific papers sharing knowledge, that's cool. But... 
And yes, uh, when I just read the page on one uh, place and then I move on and read page for another one, that's browsing. But on my site with my uh, dashboard for my servers, that should be open for a whole day. I'm not browsing away from it. At the same time, as a user, as a person, uh, if I leave the company, uh, it shouldn't take away my applications. Applications are mine. If if I make an application that um, stops working when the other side uh, goes out of business, so for example, my lawyer's office uh, is no longer working, uh, I want to have a site which still keeps my data locally for me. But at the same time, if it doesn't work, I'm not expecting a full functionality from it. So that's why um, somehow we come up to this idea that we should reclaim the word site for the places where it's not just the user, but also that other company. And uh, you are aware where it's application, it's, it's an app, it's totally yours in a way that uh, it will be with you if you just keep this stuff and run later on on virtual machine on your uh, probably RISC-V modern hardware from 50 years from now. But, and it will be fully functional. Um, But the sites, and fully functional in the sense that if there's need to be a 3N website, you can also bring it up. But the site, uh, the some business are gone, like they don't necessarily have to work completely. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of talk about site. And uh, yeah, it's not how it's how big. So like, uh, yeah, home top, home top. <laughs> uh, and I want to reiterate that together, so in that tree, uh, we should make that trunk and we should make a dev experience simple. And we also should make standards. So, uh, for example, that platform, it comes with the uh, TypeScript definitions for the clients. So you just write it out and, and you use your own uh, JavaScript or TypeScript equipment, whatever you like. And the testing is done by using uh, uh, test stand. And the test stand is an interesting definitions where you can say, well, I want the platform to start to run with this number, with this applications. And for example, turn on these users. And uh, that makes... Uh, so uh, that makes for an interesting thing. So uh, uh, if I go here, I open this. I think I showed it last time, but I just want to do it again. So these are tests uh, for actually what the client uh, expects to see from the platform. Uh, but 
In the same way, the client can test itself how it works on top of the actual platform. And, uh, yeah, so that's, and this is done in a test stand. And here it's a test stand with two users. And some of the tests I already started to have, for example, one user that have two different devices to test uh, how you can do synchronization processes. And basically that's a workflow that we put in here first, but then it can be just described as a pattern how you do tests uh, for your own applications. And it doesn't have to be a Jasmine, it's just uh, the approach of how you set it up. Uh, the main thing here is that, oh, here we go. That happens from time to time. <laughs> it's a timeout. It works against the, um, uh, the actual server. So anyhow, um, so yeah, things are kind of, uh, uh, they are shaping up. Uh, there's this uh, concept of sites that is coming and um, uh, yeah. So that's the state of affairs for privacy safe. Um, uh, questions. Uh, yeah, the, uh, so, um, yeah, 45 is, is semi-functional, but it's functional if you want to write your own um, application on it. But if you want to be a user, <laughs> not quite. Um, now, um, whether it's the same project, yes, it's the same project uh, from 2016. Uh, it's three and web. Uh, yeah, it's it's all kind of the same. Um, the thing, uh, the question here is that we have to dwell on all of these elements and. Uh, so some things will seen as simple. Uh, for example, in storage, besides the storage uh, connectivity, there is a question of how you put uh, ciphers together in a chunked way so this can be efficient. But on top of that, there's this concern that actually it's much easier to uh, have only appending rights to the objects. Uh, and there's even some privacy um, application that actually was talking about it and they put like one of the most important elements is what they've done. And uh, yeah, things actually take time because you really want to take it all. Um, <clears throat> uh, Paul says that the business wanting to protect its IP would be happy with that. So around 2016, yeah, around that time, 
I was in community tech. I mean, uh, like uh, uh, in community tech, walking and talking about startups and stuff. And uh, one of friends of mine, also a startup, uh, uh, Nicholas, uh, he is doing a hard- hardware startup. So he was like, he was very blunt, like, I'm talking about free and web, like, you know, open this, open that. And he's like, so you cannot make a monopoly out of it. Then why would I invest? And essentially, um, that was a good signal, which I understood that the plan B is the only plan potentially. So we, we, we look for, uh, for funding, we look for someone who can help, but we consciously go along the plan B. The plan B is always just make it yourself and uh, start to do the bootstrapping. However unsexy it is in all of the startup, uh, um, you know, circles. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yes, the privacy safe is the product and it will be... Uh, company organization uh it's the product it's incarnation that uses the three three and web standards and uh, it sounds nice as a word like download the privacy safe and uh yeah i meet you on a three and web so uh yes um So how can we support this project? Um, oh yeah, I have a next slide. Right. <laughs> so with, uh, we stop sharing. Yeah. And so stay tuned for the first release. So, uh, and the, uh, we, we will be on this Libra planet that is coming up. Uh, Libra planet in 21, uh, we were showing an off already on the pine phone. We were not showing it alive. I, I just recorded uh, these things, but it was an actual product. Uh, but the idea is that um, all of those little apps that were there, like they run on the pine phone and uh, having a, pine, a phone with this kind of stuff already. So but Linux itself is a much more fertile ground for experimentation. So, for example, um, in the applications, we also, in these years in between, we introduced uh, the servers, the services. And for the headless server service, you we start a separate process. Uh, application has components. So you can actually write an application which has different components. And for example, uh, they won't be stepping on each other's toes, but they can cooperate. And that's one way of structuring your stuff. Another way of structuring our stuff like we do is uh, um, so I'm trying to also read questions. <laughs> so yeah, um, if you have uh, friends uh, who are into privacy and security, send them li- the link f- uh, to this uh, docs for architectural docs. That would be awesome. 
if somebody looks at it and says, wow, this is cool, and writes a good article or piece about it, or just a letter, which I can have when I'm asking for the funds from NLNet, uh, for somebody who have been giving money under the moniker, or we look for the privacy web, what is the future for internet where we can have a security and privacy? Um, those people, they are people. If you show to people just technical stuff, they look for references, for human references. <laughs> and uh, however um, non-encouraging that is uh, to somebody who just writes code, um, yeah. So yeah. So one of the pieces uh, uh, of help uh, before we get to the first release, which I'm trying to push as hard as possible, but <clears throat> you know, this particular year is like real tough, really tough. You notice I'm missing some of the uh, meetings. It's because I have a terrible schedule. And that's because just just a financially tough year, but we'll get there. Um, <clears throat> Beyond the privacy is good for you. I don't understand what is going on at all. I wish there was a pitch telling me how I could actually use this. Right, that's a pitch for usage of the uh, stuff. That's that fruit. And that would be the next talk I would love to give you. And it will be about the site, which is like, here's my site, how I wrote it. I click here and it opens up for me my net data dashboards, my apt cache, totally different thing, but that somehow it's part of my site as a company and maybe something else. And I, nobody from the outside can see all of this. And you, you'd, you'd be wondering who cares? Well, I do. I have confluence.treeandsoft.com domain and automated attack was looking at domain names whatever has confluence on it, the robot goes there and tries uh, the whatever new uh, OASP uh, attack is accessible there. So that, that, that's the story about uh, a home lab that it can be accessible from everywhere on the planet on a chip, because uh, setting up SSHs every way is not convenient. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, and another talk is uh, an application where uh, the next cloud application, so there are next cloud applications, right? And the next cloud application is essentially your old style applications where the server is at home. And, um, but that 
NextCloud application, we took one of them and as part of the hackathon, there was a hackathon Hack 5, I believe. We were winners of that. And uh, part of the what we were doing there is actually we took that existing app and we were porting it onto this uh, uh, privacy-safe platform. Basically, tree and web platform. Privacy-safe as being one of the implementation, like one of those operating systems, if you will. Yeah. Sorry, Paul. No simple talk presentation yet. Paul gave me a good time. He's like, uh, 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 like you know, presentation have to be simple. Uh, but at the same time, uh, some ideas have to be fleshed out, and yeah. Uh, build it and they will come. Yes, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I would say that uh, I'm looking at how it is easier to build the user experience applications. So I'm spending my time now on this uh, lower level stuff so that you don't have to rework it and redo it every single time. And it's funky how uh, we all talk about this uh, signal protocol that have been redone so many times by so many different people. And you would ask yourself, aren't we sharing stuff? Why is there such a waste of human resources, human time? And uh, I hope that will change with the three and web standard and the privacy safe um, implementations. And uh, most of the stuff is already like, you know, exists and under GP licenses, as we've been talking about. Thank you for listening to the Kitchener Waterloo Linux User Group audio podcast. Our monthly meetings are free of charge and open to all, so please join us if you are around. We meet on the first non-holiday Monday of each month from 7 to 9 p.m. in Kitchener. Please visit kwlug.org for upcoming topics, for directions, and for additional meeting information. In addition to attending a meeting, you can participate in the KWLUG community by joining our email discussion list, by offering to present a topic, or just by spreading the word about this podcast. Thanks also to IndieServe Networks, Archive.org, and CCJ Clearline for hosting our website and multimedia files to the Working Center for offering meeting space, and to the many people who participate in the KWLUG community. Until next time, goodbye world.